Hello, welcome to the podcast of Jesper Baptist Church. We're beginning a new sermon series here in the first month of 2022 entitled Some Assembly Required. And this sermon series is all going to be about marriage. In the coming new year, what we want to do is we want to build better marriages and it's going to take some assembly required. The first message in this series is entitled An Imitating Marriage. Please enjoy. So take your Bibles if you haven't already and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We're introducing a new sermon series for the month of January entitled Some Assembly Required where we're going to focus all five Sundays of this month. We're going to focus on marriage. So if you have your places in Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to ask you to stand one last time in respect and reverence of the Word of God. We're just going to read the, we're going to read more later on, but we're going to start out just by reading the first five verses. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And we'll read more, but that's where we'll stop for now. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you bless the passage of Scripture that we're about to read. I pray that you bless our hearts and bless our ears and open our spirits to receive your word today. Lord, soften our hearts that it may be planted deep within. Lord, I pray that you'd bless our marriages. Just the marriage is the home. It's just the foundation of everything that we have, Lord. And it's just a beautiful picture of your, you and your church. And Lord, I just pray over the next few weeks as we explore Christian marriage, Lord, I pray that you'd reach down, bless our families through this. In Jesus Christ's precious name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Me and Emily decided one day that we're going to buy a new living room set. I mean, we're talking the whole nine yards. We're going to buy the couch. We're going to buy the entertainment center. We're going to buy the end tables. And so we decided to buy new furniture. So we went to the furniture store. And we did a walkthrough. Now, everybody has a piece that they build the room around, okay? For us, the focal point of the room is going to be the couch. The couch is going to set the tone for the entire room. So all the entertainment center, the, 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 the rug, the, the end tables, everything is going to center around that couch. So we went through the furniture store and we were looking for the couch and we found the couch, the right one. I mean, it was a sectional. It was, it was just what we wanted and we decided we were going to buy it. 
Well, this, this furniture store, we've, we've shopped at this furniture store before. The prices are very reasonable. They have in-house financing. And I learned what the term 12 months same as cash means. It means if you pay it off in a year, you don't have to pay any interest. And so I was, I was really, I was jacked out of my mind about that. Man, this is a good deal. And I go up to the counter. I was like, this is the couch we want. This is the, inter- and the entertainment center. It had been so it was discounted and it matched our couch perfectly. And we got the end tables and we got the ottoman and we got everything we wanted. And we got up to the counter. Now, when I told you, we, we've, we've bought from this place before. And so, right before we sign on the dotted line, they hit us with because of COVID, we can't come in your house and we can't install it. And that was a big selling point for me because I knew if I bought it from this furniture store that they would drive it down to my house, they would bring it into my house, they would put it together, and I wouldn't have to do anything. Then old COVID-19 had to happen. Ruin everything. And so now uh, the, 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 the furniture is on the front porch. They deliver it, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, man, it's going to take me hours and hours to do this. I need help. We have to put this thing together. And so I enlisted the help of Marcus and Kelly and the Rainies, and they came and helped. And we brought this in the house, and we put it together. It didn't come pre-assembled. There was some assembly required. Now, me and Emily have been married 15 years, and uh, coming up on 16 years, Making sure I got the numbers right. I don't want to be in the doghouse. And uh, so we've been married 15 years. And I wish I could stand up here and behind this pulpit at Chesbro Baptist Church. And I wish I could stand up here and say it's been smooth sailing the whole time. But everyone in here knows that's a lie. It has not. And it hasn't been for you either. I wish I could say in 15 years we never fought. We fought this morning. No, I'm just kidding. We didn't fight this morning. Uh, we did not. But, you know, the point is, is that we, we like to say that it's smooth sailing, but really it, it wasn't. Why? Because we both have to work at it. You have to work at a marriage. It does not come pre-assembled. Now, before we get into the series, I'd like to set the stage for what culture today thinks that marriage is. Because I want to tell you today that culture today has an unrealistic and distorted view of marriage. Okay? Let me give you some statistics. The divorce rate today is about 50%. About 50% of marriages end in divorce. In 1960, it was half that. Okay? Here's another one. In 1960, 75% of everybody in the U.S., all adults, were married. Today, that's less than 50%. Number three. In 1960, the percentage of people who cohabited, that means living together, without being married, the percentage in 1960 was negligible. That means it was hard to even measure. Today, One quarter of all unmarried women ages 25 to 40 are living with a partner. Over half of all women in their 20s, 30s, and 40s will cohabit 
at one time in their life. And what this, these statistics show is, is it shows that there's a really big change. There's a really big shift in our culture. And what these statistics show is that there's some assumptions about marriage out there. There's some assumptions out there. Here's the first modern culture assumption about marriage. Assumption number one is that most marriages are unhappy. Now you can see how they might think that. If 50% of marriages get divorced, and surely of the other 50%, a certain percentage of the ones that stay together are unhappy, then logic dictates that most marriages must then be unhappy. Assumption number two, living together before you get married is a great way to figure out if it's the right person, especially if you have the physical romantic chemistry. Because after all, that's probably the most important thing. The assumption number three, the key to marriage is finding that perfectly compatible soulmate. We hear that word all the time, soulmate. And you go to these websites, eHarmony.com, FarmersOnly.com. You don't have to be... I'm going to stop, stop, stop. Stick to the message, Brett. Stick to the message, okay? And what they have on these websites is they have these ads. And what do these ads say? They, they, they have these personal ads that say, I'm looking for someone who won't change me. I want someone who won't change me. Somebody who will accept me for who I am. Somebody that will affirm me. Somebody that will release me to be myself. But what these assumptions do is they show that there's a fear of marriage. Is they show that there is an insecurity towards marriage. This shows that there is a negative attitude towards marriage. So let me give you some more facts. As you know, those who live together before marriage are more likely to get a divorce than those who don't. The earlier that you have a physical relationship, the more likely it is that your relationship is going to break up. Get this. This floored me. Yes, 50%, the divorce rate is 50%. But did you know that the greatest percentage of divorce happens from 18 below. There's a lot of that. Before they even graduate high school. So if you wait till after you graduated high school and got through college somewhere in your mid-20s, the divorce rate goes way down. Okay, so you have to, you have to keep this in mind. Um, it's much, much less than 50%. Get this, two-thirds of all marriages that say they're unhappy, if they wait five years, then they say that they're happy with their marriage. So things change. My point is that our culture is fearful of marriage. Our culture has a tremendous lack of belief in marriage. And the reality is, is that marriage is the best thing for you if you want it, and if you can get it. Now, there is, there, the Bible does talk about singleness. There are some people that have the gift of singleness, okay? 
Paul was one of those who had the gift of singleness. Well, how do you know if you have the gift of singleness? Well, uh, if you say to yourself, man, you know what? One day I would really like to get married. Then you don't have the gift of singleness. Okay? But if you desire one day to get married, it, it, it is a good thing. But the reality of marriage is marriages, marriages are good for you. I mean, marriages, uh, the, you know, the, the people in the marriage does better. The kids do better in marriage. People in a marriage tend to live longer. And I can give you a whole list of the benefits of marriage. I had to cut that out due to time. But listen, so this, this distorted view of marriage is not based in reality. So if it's not based in reality, what is this distorted view of marriage based in? Well, there's been a, a change in the purpose of marriage. There's been a change in the purpose of, 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 of marriage. The purpose of marriage used to be, I'm going to subordinate my needs for the sake of the relationship. I'm going to put what I want on the back burner, and I'm going to subordinate and submit my needs for the sake of the relationship it's not about that anymore. Now it's about the individual. Now it's about my needs. It is stopped. Marriages today have stopped being about us and have become about me. Let me read for you a quote from Tara Parker Pope, wrote this article in the New York Times. The notion that the best marriages are those that bring satisfaction to the individual may seem counterintuitive. After all, isn't marriage supposed to be about putting the relationship first? Not anymore. For centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic and social institution, and the emotional and intellectual needs of the spouses were secondary to the survival of the marriage itself. But in the modern relationship, people are looking for a partnership, and they want partners to make their own lives more interesting, who help each other attain their own valued goals. Therefore, marriage used to be about us, and now it's about me. And that's a huge, huge change. It's huge, huge change. Huge change. Now, the purpose of marriage is not for me to make a sacrifice, and it's definitely not for me to change, okay? Listen, if I have to find someone who's perfectly compatible, I mean somebody that accepts me for who I am, that affirms me, that helps me obtain my goals, and then put on top of that, we have to have this, this great physical relationship because that's what the world says. It's, it's the whole purpose of marriage. Now marriage, the purpose of marriage now is personal individual self-fulfillment. And if this marriage isn't going into that direction, I'm not going into it. And if I'm in a marriage and it stops going that direction, I'm out. I'm gone. There's a problem with this reasoning. It puts too much pressure on marriages. More pressure is put on marriages today than the Bible puts on marriage. No wonder the divorce rate is so high. 
The Bible doesn't put that much pressure on marriage. I mean, think about it. You have to find someone who you think is perfect the way they are because you can't change them. And you have to find someone who thinks you are perfect just the way you are because they can't change you. And so you both have to be perfect. And then you have to be gorgeous and, and handsome. And, and you have to be this great provider. And then you have to have this great physical relationship because there's so much pressure to do that. And then add on top of that, they have to call, they have to be a Christian. They have to call themselves a Christian. Well, no wonder it's hard to find somebody to marry. No wonder marriage is hard these days. Well, the fact of the matter is, look, I know when she went through those double doors in that white dress walking down that aisle, she was the prettiest thing you ever saw in your life. I know when he was standing up there in his tux and he was standing up there with the preacher, he was the most handsome man you'd ever seen in your life. But let me give you a little... Newsflash, you didn't marry the perfect person because none of us are perfect. You married an imperfect, flawed individual. Everybody in this room married someone that was flawed. But you want to know the real reason why marriages are different today? I'll tell you what they are. Marriages are different today because people do not understand what a covenant is. They do not understand what a covenant is. Okay? Love is actually a covenantial thing. The fact that a man will leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, that is covenant language. I know who the witness to the first marriage was? Was God. God was the first witness. What is a covenant? Our culture doesn't even know what a covenant is. A covenant is an unbelievable. It's an incredible. And for our society, kind of a counterintuitive understanding of it's a merger of law and love. It's, it's a merger of this. A covenant relationship is more intense more personal and more intimate than any contractual relationship or any legal relationship you will ever enter into. When you make a covenant with a person, you make a, you, the reason marriage is supposed to be hard to get out of, and according to the Bible, you're not supposed to get out of it, okay? But listen, a, a, it's a commitment that's so intense that the other person can feel free to be themselves because if it's not for that commitment, they won't be themselves because they're afraid that if they see who you really are, they'll bolt. When you cohabit, when you live together, you're always marketing yourself. You're always putting on a show. You're never the right person, okay? Um... So this whole month, we're going to focus on this covenant of marriage. Our goal is to strengthen our marriages. That's what we're here to do, okay? So that was my introduction to the series. 
When people talk about marriage today, the passage of Scripture they love to go to is Ephesians 5, 21-33, because those are where the roles of marriage are laid out. They lays out the roles. But the problem, I believe, is they ignore the first 20 verses of that chapter. They ignore the first 20 verses of the chapter. The first 20 verses of the chapter are important too because a couple needs to know how to conduct themselves as Christians. Before Paul laid out the marriage roles, he laid out the Christian roles. And I guarantee you, the better Christian you are, the better spouse you will be. You know what the best advice I can give somebody who is married or who wants to be married is to be a better Christian. Being a better Christian will help you have a more healthy marriage. The better Christian you are, the better marriage you will have. And, and, and Paul it, you know, gets into defining the roles of marriage, but before he does that, he lays a foundation defining the roles of a Christian. And the role of a Christian is to be this, an imitator of God an imitator of God. So what I've got for you this morning, and uh, I won't be long, is, is I'm going to give you some things that God is that Christians should imitate. These are some things that God is that Christians should imitate. Number one, God is love. God is love. Let's go to verses one and two. Therefore, be imitators of God... As beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Okay, be an imitator of God. How do you do that? Walk in love. Walk in love. As the first, God is love. To imitate God, you must walk in love. That's how we imitate him. In fact, this is confirmed when it says, just as Christ loved you. Now, uh, I'm going to refresh some of your memories, uh, and, you know, because most of you probably know this already, but let's refresh our memories on the Greek words for love, okay? The first Greek word for love is phileo. Phileo love is a brotherly love. It's the reason why Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love. This is the love that King David had with Saul's son, Jonathan. They were best friends. They had this brotherly love. The next word, Greek word for love is eros, okay? Uh, uh, this is where we get the word erotic from. And this is uh, the word that describes physical attraction. Now, this word isn't used in the New Testament at all, but in the context of a husband and wife, there's nothing wrong with it, okay? Sturgeon love is a love that is a step above phileo love, and it's a love for your family members. So it's a love between a, 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 a parent and a child, a brother and a sister. This is love inside of a family relationship. But love at its ultimate Love at its apex is agape love. Love is, agape love is a self-sacrificing love. It's a love that God has for his own children. It's a type of love that, that was displayed on the cross by Jesus Christ. 
For God so agapeoed the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If a parent lays down their life for a child or a husband lays down his life for uh, the wife or vice versa, you know, this, it's, it's this type of love. But, but God's agape love is even greater than that. Okay? This type of love originates from God. So the only way that me and you can show this type of love is if we imitate God. Because this type of love originates from Him. It comes from Him. He is our example. So we have to imitate God in order to give agape love. Jesus is the ultimate example of this self sacrificing love. And the reason why our marriages fail today is because people don't love like Jesus anymore. People don't love like Jesus anymore. Our love today is selfish and it's not selfless. So yes, we have this self-sacrificing love where we love the other person more than we love ourselves. But listen, so Paul isn't just introducing this to the Ephesians. He's also warning them. Because you have to understand about Ephesus. Ephesus was a wicked, wicked city. It was the Las Vegas of the day. It was rampant in fornication, rampant immorality, drunken orgies. It was really, really bad. So now he's got to warn us how not to love or how not to act. So verse 3. But immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting. So if you're a Christian, then the things listed here should not even pop in your brain. You, you shouldn't entertain those thoughts. OK, it actually uses the word pornea. Okay, in this verse, which, which means sexual sin. So no adultery, no fornication. This is a physical relationship and the confines of a marriage between a man and a woman. I'm going to tell you today, it's sacred and it's not casual. It's not casual. It is sacred. But that's the doing part. But he also gets, he, he goes into the talking part. He says, no uncleanness, no filthy talk, basically no dirty jokes. Listen, think about what we consider funny. What do you laugh at? What do you think is funny? Something may be funny, but if it's inappropriate, should you listen to it or should you speak it? Look, when somebody is around you, and says something inappropriate, and then they see you, and then they apologize. They say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't see you there. I wouldn't have said that. Maybe they say it because they know you go to church. They know you're trying to do right. You talk about God and the Bible all the time, so they feel guilty saying that thing around you. Don't be ashamed of that. Don't be ashamed of that. That's a good thing. It, it actually means that you're, that means you're on the right track, okay? Uh, listen, uh, don't, don't be ashamed of that. Um, because when, when someone says that around there, they, they, know, they know by your words and your actions that it's not okay. 
Listen, Ephesus was, was a very wicked city and reflects our culture today. And then the verse finishes out, but rather giving of thanks. So that's what you should do instead. And we'll talk about that more later. Let's go to verse 5. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So these are the consequences of what Paul just warned us about. You have to remember that idolatry is more than bowing down to statues. It's more than bowing down to Buddha. Okay, it's more than that. All right. Anything you want more than God is an idol. Anytime you want something more than God, you're guilty of idolatry. That's why it's associated with covetousness. Okay, because idolatry is all about wanting, it's all about self-gratification, it's all about self-lust. People pick their idols so, uh, you know, they can commit the sin that they want to sin. Okay, Um, so uh, the verse says these immoral, impure idolaters have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. So let me clarify this. Let me clarify this. A redeemed, saved person that's indwelled by the Holy Spirit cannot rest in these sins. Not that they won't commit them. David committed adultery. I guarantee you he's in heaven. I guarantee it. Okay? The point is you can't live in these sins. You can't park in these sins. You can't rest in these sins. Because if you're truly saved and you truly have the Holy Spirit, eventually you'll be under too much conviction to stay there. So you'll have to get out. So it's about resting and living in there for too long. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, what you have to understand about the Christians of Paul's day is that there was a sect of Christians that believed in something called Gnosticism. They were Gnostics. And the Gnostics believed a whole bunch of different things. One of the things that the Gnostics believed is they believed that the physical was separate from the spiritual. Okay? That that, that the body has no effect on the soul. So because the, now they claim to be Christian, but because the, phys, because the physical had no effect on the spiritual, they said, then we can go and do whatever we want to do. And it won't matter. You want to go get drunk? Go do it. You want to go visit a brothel? Go do it. Because the physical has no effect on the spiritual. And Paul says, empty words like this don't Listen to them because they're lies. And it's going to bring wrath on the people who practice them. Because I want to tell you today, what you do with your body does affect you spiritually. It's one of the reasons why if you obey your mom and dad, you live longer. Because they're, 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 they're entwined. Okay, and, and that's one of the reasons why a physical relationship is sacred and not casual. Because what you do physically does affect you spiritually. And look, these people 
claimed to be Christian. And, and what they really were is a term that I've introduced on Wednesday nights. I'm not sure if I introduced it on Sunday morning yet, but is a term that's called practical atheism. And practical atheism is where you claim to be a Christian, but you're li- you live your life as if there is no God. That's practical atheism, okay? And, uh, you know, this type of living will incur the wrath of God. Verse 7 says, Therefore do not be partakers with them. Do not enter in even into a relationship with people like this. Don't laugh with them. Don't joke with them. Don't participate in sins with them. Don't condone their sins. Don't do it. But hold on. We're to be witnesses to these people. So that doesn't mean that I sequester myself off from them like I'm Amish or something. That's not the point. All I'm saying is, is you have to be careful of the relationships that you foster. The most dangerous relationship is with people who speak empty words. They speak empty words. They say they're a Christian, but their life reflects that 0%. And you know who this is important for? This is important for people who are single, who are planning on getting married one day. You should not enter into relationships with someone who claims to be a Christian, but their life does not back it up. Are they living it out? Or are they just speaking empty words? We are to be imitators of God. Number one, God is love. Number two, God is light. God is light. Let's start reading in verse number eight. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it's disgraceful even to speak of things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Christians are the light. God is light. We're to imitate that light. But we're not showing our light as Christians. And what this passage that we just read shows us what's wrong with Christians today. There are three things wrong with Christians today. Christians are ignorant. Christians are silent. And Christians are asleep. Christians are ignorant. Christians are silent. Christians are asleep. This verse says we are the light of the world. Not we're in light. It says we are the light. But we're ignorant of God's word. We're silent on calling out the world. And we're asleep to what the real world is about. So how can we fix this? Number one, learn. Learn. Learn what pleases the Lord. Learn to live out the fruits of the Spirit. We want healthy marriages, but we don't want to learn what pleases the Lord. If you don't learn what pleases the Lord, you'll never learn what pleases your spouse. How can we learn the light? 
how the light works if we don't study the light? How can we live like Christians if we don't study how a Christian is supposed to act? We want to imitate God. Then what we have to do is we must learn from his word. Bible teaching, Bible preaching has to be a a priority in our life. And for Christians today, it's not. Number two, expose. First, we fix these problems by number one, learn. Number two, expose. As a Christian, the influence that you have is the presence of Christ inside of you. That's the influence that you have. That's why we should not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Okay, so when the Bible says I should expose darkness, should I, does that mean I go to work Monday and I start pointing out to people that sin, that sin, that sin, that sin. Hey, hey, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt in your phone call. You're sinning right now. Is that what it means when it says expose sin? No, it's not what it means. See, this exposing, it happens naturally by the fact that you're walking in the light. When you didn't participate in the deeds of unfruitful darkness, that was you shining your light. When you didn't participate in those deeds, that was you shining the light. Your testimony is that light. Now, of course, if somebody asks you, you're going to tell them. Somebody asks for your opinion, you are going to tell them. Let me, let me tell you a story about a guy. I knew a guy. He was at work. He had this job. He liked his job. One of the things that his coworkers would do is they would go out every weekend and just get drunk every single weekend. And there was all this pressure for everybody to go. Well, he didn't want to go because he was a Christian and he, he, didn't, he didn't do that kind of stuff. So what he did, he was afraid to tell these people that he was a Christian because he'd seen how they treated Christians and he didn't want to be ostracized. So what did he do? He started telling people that he was in recovery. He would start lying to them. He would say, I'm in recovery. And guess what? They didn't bother him. They didn't invite him to go out anymore. So let me tell you something about this guy. He was wrong. He was wrong. He had an opportunity to take a stand for Christ, to take a stand for truth, to take a stand for this Bible, and he didn't do it. This Bible says, I count it an honor to suffer like Christ suffered. I count it a privilege to suffer as Christ suffered. Number three, we got to wake up. We got to wake up. Verse 14, for this reason, it says, awake sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Reminds me of that hymn we sang today, shine, Jesus, shine. Which actually, to tell you the truth, this little, this little phrase that he's quoting here in verse 14, it's not a Bible verse, it's probably a hymn. It's probably a hymn that the Ephesian church sang, and, and he, he's quoting this hymn, he's quoting this song, and, and Paul is quoting here, and he exposes a problem. Christians are sleepwalking. 
Christians are asleep at the wheel. We're sleepwalking. We're sleepwalking because Christians don't care anymore. When you're asleep, you don't know you're asleep. If you're asleep, you don't know it until you say, hey, um, you, come, you come, become aware that you're asleep. That's when you finally wake up. I used to hate it when my mom would try to get me up in the morning and go to school, and she'd come in there and turn that light on. Oh, it irked me because I, that light, oh, I can't go back and get that precious, precious snooze button sleep because the light is on. That snooze button sleep is the best sleep. Okay, you can, the light's on. Oh, I used to hate that. Let me read for you Ephesians 2, 5. Even when we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. We are different. We have a Holy Spirit. We have a Bible. We have a job to do. We have a mission, but Christians are sleepwalking and we're walking around still pretending like we're living like the world. And we don't care that people are going to hell. We don't care about that anymore. It never enters our brain. If that never enters our brain, then we are asleep. If you don't stand at the gas station and pump your gas and look at the person standing next to you as someone that's either going to spend an eternity in heaven or an eternity in hell, you're asleep at the wheel. If you don't go to work and talk to your friends or go to a family function and you do not give one care that your family member or your friend is going to spend an eternity in heaven or spend an eternity in hell, then you, my friend, are asleep at the wheel. You're sleepwalking. You're not shining your light because you don't understand how important this is. You're asleep. If you understood how important this is, you would share the gospel with your family. Even if they reject you, a seed can be planted that can grow into a plant. And you water it with prayer. And God, the Holy Spirit, and God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ, they, the, it works on this person. Man, it's time we wake up. And then number three, God is wisdom. So God is love, God is light. Number three, God is wisdom. Start in verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. You want to know where the wisest place for me and you to be? The wisest place for us to be is in the will of God. And when you're deciding to get married, a lot of times, usually the last person we ask is God. In fact, a lot of times we make up our minds before we go to God about it. Well, let me let you in on a little secret. Did you know that the more filled with the Spirit you are, the easier it will be to decipher the will of God. The wiser you will become, the more you are filled with the Spirit, the more you will know what the will of God is. Okay, Brother Brett, how do I get filled with the Spirit? Well, let me give you four quick, quick ways. Verse 19, 
Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Number one is public worship. Public, corporate worship. The key to being filled with the Spirit is praise. It's the first thing on the list. It's praise. Nothing will awaken a Christian more than when a Christian gives themselves over to psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and praises Jesus Christ. Nothing will awaken the Spirit in you more than that. We are supposed to build build up each other. We are supposed to encourage each other. Public worship, number two says, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Second is private worship. Private worship. Worshiping God by yourself when nobody else is around. You know what? That proves that it's not a show. That proves that it's real. And it proves that it's genuine. And I love to say this. You are who you are when you're by yourself. When you're alone and there's nobody else around and the door is shut, that's who you really are. Number three, verse 20. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even to the Father. Number three is thankfulness. Thankfulness. An attitude of gratitude. The more you show God how thankful you are and the more gratitude you give God and the more opportunities you get to thank God, the more filled with the Spirit you'll be. Number four, verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Number four, humility. Humility. He tells us here to be subject one to another. And isn't it funny that before he tells the wives to submit to the husbands, he says, everybody submit to everybody. Isn't that interesting? Mutual submission. And this word submit, it's like an army rank. It's like considering that somebody else outranks you. You understand when you join the army, you cease being an individual. The only thing you serve now is the battalion. You serve the greater good. You serve everything you do from the moment you enlist. You stop being an individual and you start working after the betterment of the team. That's how we're to live. Now, what's the motive for this mutual submission to one another? Where I put my needs on the back burner for you. Where where does this come from? It comes from fear. It comes the the motive for the submission is fear. And it's a fear, it's a respect. And did you know that fear and respect go hand in hand with love? Did you know that? If I respect Christ, then I will fear disappointing him. If I respect Christ, I will fear grieving him. This is totally compatible with love. When you really respect someone, you fear not pleasing him or not pleasing her. You're afraid to disappoint that person. Let me read you a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones as we close. 
The danger is that we should think of marriage amongst Christians as essentially the same as it is with everybody else. The only difference being that these two happen to be Christians, whereas the others are not. Now, if that is still our conception of marriage, then we have considered this great paragraph entirely in vain. Christian marriage, the Christian view of marriage, is something that is essentially different from all views. You do not have the same Christian, uh, you do not have the same marriage relationship as people in the world. It works different for us. The fact that we are Christian totally changes it. It's not that, oh, our marriage is the same as the world, just to add on top of it that we're Christians. No! Our, our marriages are completely different. We have a different motive. We have a different purpose. It comes from a different place. It stands for a different thing. We serve a different God. The only true God. Christian marriage is completely different. Do not go to the world for your marriage advice. Go to the Word of God. What would solve so many problems in marriages today is if the husband and the wife started imitating God instead of promoting their own selfish desires. What happened to our marriages when it used to be everything was about the relationship? No, 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 no. Now it's all about me. If you're an imitator of God, it wouldn't be about you. Because God is love. And you would love people more than yourself. Because God is light. And you're going to live for Christ no matter what so that your light will shine and others will see it and others will get saved. And God is wisdom. And we're going to learn the Bible and we're going to wake up how the world really is. Want a better marriage? Start imitating God. 